Section 1 of Stupor Mundi, The Life and Times of Frederick II, Emperor of the Romans, King of Sicily and Jerusalem, 1194-1250, by Lionel Alshorn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 1, A Heritage of Strife, Part 1. The arrogant and defiant assertion that man is the supreme controller of his own destinies can hardly be applied, even by the most rebellious intelligence, to those mortals who rule over the kingdoms of the world. However great the personality of a monarch may be, the success or failure of his reign and the magnitude of his power are governed by the temper and tendencies of his age. Our own Henry VIII owed the enjoyment of his absolute authority, not primarily to his profound sagacity and dominating will, but to the fact that the men of his century were eager to secure the peace and order that a benevolent despotism brings in its train. And the unhappy Charles was the victim not so much of his own unstable mind and wavering purpose as of the gradual revulsion of feeling in a nation which, grown strong and self-confident under the good governance of the Tudor dynasty, was now eager to free itself from the controlling power which had led it into the haven of peace. Amid the countless examples which history furnishes of this subjection of kings to circumstances, there is none more striking than the career of the emperor Frederick II. This magnificent prince, whom his own contemporaries regarded with amazement and hailed as the wonder of the world, and whom a historian of our own age has signalized as the most gifted of the sons of men, by nature the more than peer of Alexander, of Constantine, and of Charles, is denied by posterity the title of great, which has been frequently bestowed upon lesser men. His enlightened mind, his energy, his strength, and his genius should have resulted in a reign of glory rarely paralleled in the history of mankind. Yet through the heritage of strife to which he succeeded, through the formidable power, the overweening ambition, and the implacable hatred of the papacy, he was denied the part of a builder and compelled to do the work of an architect who seeks to maintain a crumbling edifice and uphold it against the assaults of time. Throughout his life he was occupied in defending the rights of the empire against the power that assailed it, and thus he was prevented from that work of construction which history demands of those whom she will honor with the verdict of greatness. In order to comprehend Frederick's position and the power and pretensions of his enemy, it is necessary to recall to mind the development of the medieval empire and the papacy, and the gradual enmity which arose between them. In the year 476, the throne of the Western Empire became vacant through the deposition of Romulus Augustulus by Odoacer, who sent the imperial insignia to his patron, the Eastern Emperor, at Constantinople. For over three centuries there was no emperor at Rome, until there arose in the West a giant whose power qualified him to fill with dignity the ancient throne of the Caesars. Pippin, king of the Franks, had defended the Pope of Rome against the Lombards, and had bestowed certain rich lands on the spiritual power. In 768 Charlemagne succeeded Pippin, 
and extended his sway over many of the nations that had once acknowledged Rome as their master, converting reluctant pagans by the argument of the sword. In 800, this conqueror of the heathen appeared in Rome to rescue the Pope from a hostile faction of the populace. In admiration for his militant Christianity and in gratitude to his house, Leo III crowned him with the imperial crown in the Church of St. Peter and proclaimed him Caesar and Augustus. The initiative of the revival of the empire thus belonged to the Pope, and the crown of empire was bestowed by him. His successors were not slow to assert that what the Pope had given, the Pope could take away. Here then were already two factors which contributed to the aggrandizement of the papacy and to the strife of later centuries. Pippin had laid the foundation of the temporal power of the papacy, and thus inoculated the pontiffs with the desire for territorial expansion. Charles, by accepting the crown from Leo, had made possible the claim to the power of deposition and the superiority which that power implied. Charles added yet a third by freeing the whole body of the clergy from the jurisdiction of the temporal courts in criminal as well as civil cases. The ecclesiastical courts thus strengthened, gradually extended their jurisdiction over the laity, and acquired the power to try all cases related to marriage, wills, perjury, or concerning widows, orphans, or crusaders, on the ground that all such cases were connected with religion. Further, since all crime was sin, and therefore a spiritual matter meet to be dealt with by the church, they claimed the right to try all criminal cases. Thus, by the end of the twelfth century, the church had absorbed a great part of the criminal administration of both laity and clergy. Naturally, the pope, as the head of the church, became the supreme court of appeal in all cases amenable to ecclesiastical jurisdiction. He thus assumed the attribute of the fountain of justice for the whole of Christendom, while emperors, kings, and princes bore the sword, according to this ambitious conception, simply as his ministers to carry into effect his sentences and decrees. Soon after the death of Charlemagne, the empire fell into decay and was not revived until 962, when Otto the Great secured the imperial crown to the German race. It henceforth became the rule that whoever was elected by the German princes as their king had a right to the crown of Italy and also to the imperial title. A century after this revival, the papacy, which had also sunk into degradation and discredit, was rescued from a humiliating bondage to the various factions in Rome by Henry III. This emperor, forgetting his worldly wisdom in his zeal for Christianity, determined to put an end to the line of vicious and dissolute popes, who had long occupied the throne of St. Peter. Exerting his authority as protector of the church, he nominated for the holy office a series of devout and strong-minded men, and thus restored the moral repute of a power which was to bring his successors to ruin. In 1073, Gregory VII, or Hildebrand, was elected to the papal chair and flung down the gauge of battle with the secular authority. Discarding with scorn the theory that the Pope and the Emperor were two co-equal world powers ordained to act in conjunction for the general good of Christendom, he asserted that the spiritual power was to stand related to the temporal power as the sun to the moon. 
he conceived the ambitious ideal of an universal theocracy, with the Pope at its head as God's vicar on earth. For the attainment of this ideal, he instituted two reforms to strengthen his influence, the enforcement of clerical celibacy and the suppression of simony. It was inevitable that this latter reform should result in conflict with the monarchs of Europe. The evil of simony had grown up side by side with feudalism. Abbots and bishops had secured the protection that was so necessary in those turbulent times by becoming the vassals of powerful barons and princes. When once a prelate had paid homage for his estates and temporalities, these became a permanent fief of the overlord, were subject to the same feudal obligations as a lay fief, and were at the disposition of the patron when the office became vacant. The temporal rulers throughout Christendom were thus securing the control of the most important ecclesiastical appointments, and it frequently resulted that a vacant bishopric would be virtually sold to the highest bidder or bestowed without any regard to the moral character of the recipient. Moreover, the authority of the Pope was naturally weakened by this dependence of his prelates on feudal lords and by the acquisition of those lords of the power of nomination to vacancies. Hildebrand, ever scornful of moderate measures, struck fiercely at the root of the evil with a reform which was as impracticable as it was subversive of established order. He issued decrees sternly forbidding the clergy to receive investiture for a church, abbey, or bishopric from the hands of a temporal lord. This was nothing more or less than an attempt to wrest out of the hands of the lords and princes of Christendom their authority over the vast ecclesiastical domains that lay within their territory. When it is remembered that the church was then in possession of nearly one-fourth of the lands in the great countries of the West, the magnitude of this attempted change becomes clear. The success of the reform would make the Pope the actual overlord of all these wide territories, and would fatally weaken the authority of every temporal ruler in Christendom, who would see their diminished possessions interspersed with innumerable estates owing allegiance to an independent power. The immoderate attempt of Hildebrand aroused opposition on every side, but the fiercest conflict raged in Germany. The emperor-elect, King Henry IV, threatened with excommunication and deposition for his opposition to the reform, gathered a council of such of the prelates of the empire as dared to answer to his summons, and ordered Hildebrand to descend from the papal throne. The infuriated pope gathered a council in his turn at Rome, and issued the dread sentence of excommunication and deposition. In the name of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, ran the solemn decree, I withdraw through St. Peter's power and authority from Henry the King, son of Henry the Emperor, who has arisen against the Church with unheard of insolence, the rule over the whole kingdom of the Germans and over Italy. And I absolve all Christians from the bond of the oath which they have made or shall make to him, and I forbid any one to serve him as king. If in later days the frequency of the sentence deprived it of some of its terrors, this first deposition of a monarch was salutary in its effects. Henry's authority seemed to slip entirely out of his hands. Encouraged by the papal sanction, a large number of his subjects revolted, and he was shunned by many of his firmest friends and supporters as a man accursed of heaven. 
There ensued the memorable scene at Canossa. Henry followed Hildebrand in penitence to a stronghold in the Apennines, and for three days, clad in sackcloth and with feet bare to the snow, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire and the successor of Charlemagne and the Caesars awaited the pope's forgiveness in the courtyard of the castle. On the fourth day the penitent was admitted to the papal presence, and the sentence which had brought him to this abject submission was revoked. Henry was soon able to revenge himself upon Hildebrand, but the humiliation at Canossa struck a severe blow at the imperial prestige, and increased that of the papacy to a corresponding degree. The successors of Hildebrand continued the struggle with the unrepentant emperor, and incited his own son to rebel against him. Henry finally died of a broken heart. After further strife between the representatives of the rival powers, this first stage of the great struggle known as the Investiture Contest was brought to a close in 1122 by the Concordat of Worms, which applied a reasonable remedy to the evil which Hildebrand had attempted to eradicate in so drastic a fashion. There followed a few years of peace, and then the great house of Hohenstaufen appeared upon the scene and took up the gauge against the aggressor of the imperial rights. End of section 1